freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello again. Uh, we are culminating today with uh, Adam Coleman. I mean, this is double culmination here. This is, we, we are really gonna seal the deal completely with the culmination concept. Adam is a guy who uh, you have to, you know, I'm gonna let him tell the story himself, but he's one of these brave young African-American men who is not accepting what people tell him what to say, any people. And, and I a million times asked him to say giraffe and he just, I tried it, will not, guy will not do it. Um, he's the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing, but I wanna give him a chance to tell his story in his own words. So Adam, thanks for joining us. And I guess again, for contributing to the twin culmination concepts that we've got going today. Yeah, going uh, I appreciate you having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure and a blessing. Um, just to introduce myself a little bit, like Thank I said, you. I'm I'm the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. Um, I'm also a new author of a book called uh, Black Victim to Black Victor. Ah, right. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a book of many things. It talks about uh, issues that are happening within America for Black Americans. Uh, but it comes from a opposing uh, narrative that is, you know, going around today that everybody tends to believe. But uh, I focus a lot on family, uh, the role of fathers, uh, and how important they are. Um, you know, the gap between single parenthood and the nuclear family, um, and how it's a, it's a growing issue in general within uh, within America, and I find in other countries as well. Um, so family is of the utmost importance, but I talk about a bunch of different things like morality, uh, God to a degree. I try not to get over, over religious. Um, it's not overly political, um, but I do talk about certain elements. Yeah. I, that's the book obviously behind you. you yes. You, know, you can see it in your screens. You're, you're well-practiced at this, so you didn't jerk around a little bit. Now, Tell me this. Tell me the Adam Coleman story. How do you how do you get here? Um, you know, I guess my story, just like anybody else's story, my childhood. Uh, I'm a child of a single parent home. My father was rarely in my life. Um, uh, you know, basically at one point I would hear from him maybe once or twice a year. Uh, if I was lucky, I'd see him once or twice a year. And when I did see him, it was like having a stranger come up. Um, I, I didn't really have any type of connection with them. Uh, there was a period of time, actually, to rephrase that, when I was 16, that was the last time I saw him in person. Um, the last time I talked to him, I was 21. I had my son, and I wanted to see if there was something there. And the last time I spoke to him was, like I said, like talking to a stranger, someone who's disinterested. So at that point, I pretty much told myself that I'm not going to try anymore. You know, if he reaches out to me, I'll speak to him. I'd love to, but I'm not going to try anymore. You know, you can't, uh, you know, you could bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink it kind of thing. 
Um, and that was the last time I spoke with him. You know, I'm, I'm 37 years old today and actually he passed away a few years ago. So, um, you know, that is much of my story. The, the story of, you know, the kid who's looking for his father to be in his life and realizing how uh, uh, deficient I am as a man, or I was, I should say, as a man growing up and how I struggled in my teens and uh, 20s as well. And it wasn't until I would probably say a handful of years ago where I felt like I was figuring things out um, and, I, you know, coming into my own. But it's, it's one of those things where I look at people who have their father, who is a healthy father in their life, and they fill in those gaps. And, and I started examining how important that role is and what happens to people when they don't have that father figure in their life. Um, so I talk about it a lot because it is the most glaring issue when it comes to Black Americans. It is the biggest problem. It's the number one stat that sticks out, the, the rate of single parent homes. Do you agree with the widespread analysis or con conclusion that the perp the reason for this is because of the, the way public aid is structured? Or was there, are there other factors going on as well? That's one factor. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, to really get too far into that because, you know, that was obviously before I was born. Uh, you know, everybody makes, makes reference to, you know, the 60s uh, and, and the, the government coming in incentivizing single parent homes. That may be true. I think also that led to a change within the culture. And so a lot of what I talk about is, is a cultural thing. It's, uh, it's a cultural thing as far as what becomes acceptable. And for us, you know, uh, Black Americans are very tribalistic. There's no other way to put it. We see race as a very important thing, a very important signifier. And there is, that's a good and bad thing. It's not all bad. But what I'm focusing on is how is that hindering us thinking in that particular way? And when that becomes our method of thinking, what happens when bad elements enter our culture? Are we willing to question our culture? And what I'm finding is that we're questioning it less and less and the people who stand up and say, I think, I think something is wrong, they get shouted down or they be called uh, you know, white uh, sympathizers or coons or whatever you wanna call it, when really they're just trying to ring the alarm that something is wrong here. So to, to kind of answer your question, I think that played a part. I think that started to change the culture because when you see something starting to become normal, you don't question it. It's just normal at that point. And so when, you know, uh, I use the example of my fiance, she grew up in Brooklyn uh, during the eighties. And she said the only family she remembers having both parents were a family that was from uh, the Caribbean. Everybody else had one parent in their home. And this is nothing but black people who live there. And to her, she never really thought about it until she got older, how abnormal that is in the world. That is, it's a very abnormal thing, but to her, that was normal. Oh, your mom's there. You know, no one really asked where dad is. And as uh, you pointed out, it's yeah. become much more normal and not only far from being something that is unique to uh, the African-American community. Right. It's a normal, I mean, you know, you, you just used a word that often makes me jump when I hear it, my fiance. Yeah. People have these fiancés who have, were the mothers or fathers of children 
three or four of their children and they've been fiancés for 10, 15, 20 years. <laughs> I got news for you. Sit down. It's going to make you sad. <laughs> you know, and, and, and this is, you know, really a corruption, right, of, of, of what we mean. You know, in, in my community, mm-hmm. we, our dating is, is a relatively formalized process. There's a lot of pre-screening that goes on before a couple even meets. And engagements are never, almost never, more than two or three months long because once you've decided to go forward, you want to get on with business. Right. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of scholarship, a lot of public, you know, public discussion about the topic of nuclear families. Mm-hmm. And we've now, instead of reacting to that by reinforcing nuclear families, we are now in this world where you can't eat. There's, forget Heather has two mommies. Neither one of them might be a mommy. Neither one of them might be a lady. I mean, this is a this talk about a cultural problem, but I I I don't want to I don't want to take us there necessarily because I, mm-hmm. I you know I'm sure there's a lot of stuff in your book that you know beyond beyond this observation. I mean, I I do know people who have had that that experience that you've had, and you know, and some people never. It stays with them their whole life. It's a form of rejection. Mm-hmm. You know, your mother, it's extremely unusual for a mother to really reject a child. She's the one who gives birth. She's the one who has the baby. Of course, parents give children up for adoption. It happens. But the father not being there, of course. So, I mean, on the other hand, right? You're saying that it became normal. If it, So if something's normal, we're saying that even if it becomes normal in the sense that that's what I see all around me, the child still feels something different absolutely by the absence now do we do you think it's true if it's any two parents or that there the child has a natural inclination based on just your observations and your you know i'm not looking again to get into attacking anyone's way of life here but you know when you look at gay adoption with which which is a very very popular phenomenon and mm-hmm. and a lot of gay parents make excellent parents um, but if a child has two mommies or two daddies, do you have any observations about whether that fills that hole or, or anything, anything to say about that here? You can say whatever you want. <laughs> um, I think it can, I think that can help. Um, you know, much of what well, I talk, lots of love is good. You, you yeah. There's no real downside to it. Absolutely. Um, much of what I talk about is it's a numbers game, you know, Two is better than one. That's one respect as to what I'm what I'm signifying, as in playing the role as the provider and the nurturer is a burdensome task for any person. You know, if the problem was single male parents, it'd be a similar type of problem. It'd be different problems that are happening, but it would be an issue because there's a deficiency in the nurturing department. Where we're right. seeing a deficiency, where we're seeing is a deficiency when it comes to the masculine traits or boundary setting, um, you know, things of that nature, the respect for authority. These are traditionally um, viewpoints and, and roles that are, uh, that are um, more traditional towards men. That's the best way of putting it. Um, men are more likely to assert a respect of boundaries, 
you know, uh, rough and tumble play, for example, is one of those type of things where you're setting boundaries for children and they so learn. That's a very, very interesting insight. In other words, rough yeah. and tumble play helps a child understand that the use of physical force right. isn't an absolute no-no. It's something that you have to learn to control. So it can actually be something that's, that's fun for all involved. Right. Contact sports, you know, that's a, and that, you know, and, and that helps a child fe feel secure knowing that we're going to learn where those, where those boundaries are. Right, exactly. And, and that's the key word right there is boundaries. You know, for example, I see it like uh, it translates into sexual boundaries, for example. Um, when you start to learn boundaries just in general, it applies to all different types of areas, respect for other people's boundaries. Um, so for example, when you look at the high amounts of crime or especially violent crime that is committed by an extremely small percentage of people within the black community, it's extremely disproportionate. But when you look at them, the vast majority of them come from single parent homes. And you have to ask what kind of kid who respects people's boundaries, who respects other people's properties, who respects authority, commits crimes over and over and over and ends up in jail? And the answer is, there is no kid that generally, <laughs> you know, uh, has those attributes that ends up in that predicament. So I'm looking at how does the father play a role in that type of mindset and that type of behavior, because no kid just wakes up one day and, you know, have a rosy sunshine childhood and starts to pull out a gun and start shooting at innocent people. That's, it's a, it's a long process to make it to that point. Right. There, there's, a, there's an absolutely a, a missing gear. Right. The, 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 the absolute lack of empathy for, for, for other people that we see in these little video snippets, people walking up to total strangers and beating them. Most of us wouldn't even be able to contemplate how to beat up someone who had it coming to him. You know, I right. mean, uh, I mean, I suppose people, I mean, look, I once had to pound somebody in the face to, and that's how I learned how to deal with bullies. And you know why I did that? Cause my father made me. Right. My, my father taught me a lesson that he had to learn the same way when he was growing up in the Lower East Side. You know, mm -hmm. that's an example, you know, of, of, of the kinds of things that fathers bring to the table. Right. Um, obviously though, there's a leadership cadre in the black community yes that has decided that rather than truly seeking emancipation and independence that victimization and the state are the path to something maybe it's just you know is, is it just something in the line of I want to continue to, to I want to be the leader and I've got the relationship with the government or is there is there a good way to look to look at people who have made a career out of evidently um, maintaining and supporting policies that don't seem to help black people let's talk about uh, Barack Obama for example okay I mean the mystery, the greatest mystery of all the mysteries of Barack Obama is why did he do so little focusing on the black community when he was in office? 
What's your take on that? I actually write about him in the book a little bit. Um, my whole thing is that Barack Obama is the example of when you think that someone who looks like you is somehow your savior, right? Somehow your kin. Um, you know, there's a phrase that they throw around, you know, not all skin folk are kin folk, but they use it in a derogatory manner. Uh, what I'm actually saying is just because they look like you doesn't mean that they're of the same class as you. And there's a difference. You know, he went to Princeton, he went to Harvard, you know, he was, he, you know, he's a lawyer, he's of a different class than the vast majority of Americans, not even just black Americans. And when you look at him saying hope and change, and then he enters office, and what does he do? He lets his buddies in, the, in Wall Street of the same class of the same elite status get away with what they did, no prosecutions, and gave him a bailout and said, hey, try not to do it again. And then we know what happens with Congress behind the scenes passing laws to prevent that type of collapse happening again, where they just keep throwing money at it and hopefully it doesn't fall apart. Uh, without bringing warning to the American public. So, or actually without having to go back to Congress like how they did before. So what you're seeing there is someone of a, of a different class, of a different mindset, of an elite status. And even he started peddling race as a distraction. So nobody would focus on what he was doing. The, the crystallizing moment for me in, in that phenomenon was I, I was in a dry cleaner in Passaic, New Jersey, picking mm -hmm. up my stuff. And everyone who worked there was a, what we now call people of color. They were mm -hmm. all black, mostly Hispanic. And just at that, and the radio was on, just, just at that moment while I was picking this stuff up, the OJ Simpson verdict came in. And they all started cheering, cheering. And I remember thinking, why are these people cheering for OJ? What did OJ ever do for them? Yeah. He was the most assimilated black man in America yeah. until he was arrested and he turned it into a racial thing. And it was mind boggling to me, mind boggling. And, and yet that, that, that switch successfully worked. Yeah, and actually it, it's worked for decades. Um, you know, you, you have brought up black leadership and I take issue that we're the only demographic who's expected to have leadership of our race. And that's, that's a problem because once someone's arbitrarily a leader, like we didn't vote for anybody, we didn't vote for Al Sharpton to be, you know, the racial leader, but he, he put himself there and even more so the, the political establishment ensures that he's there. The media establishment assures that he's there. As soon as something happens, they give him the cameras and make him the focal point. There's a reason why the victims of uh, you know, these police shootings are starting to look back at the quote unquote activists and saying, why are you using our dead loved ones names to profit off of? And that is because they're finally saying something about it. You know, they're finally sticking up and saying, why are these people getting rich off of my dead relative's name and we're not getting a penny for it or why is anybody making any money off of this you know what is this actually helping and it's helping it's helping to enrich people um you know for arbitrary reasons you know there is no al sharpton center the last time i checked and i've looked personally at his his uh nonprofits taxes 
and he pays himself over a million dollars a year. You know, he doesn't really have a staff and he has arbitrary. And he doesn't really have a job. Right. He doesn't really have a job either. Yet somehow he's able to, to bring in over a million dollars a year to pay himself. So I asked myself, what is he actually doing? What, what's, what's his benefit if he's a so-called black leader? You know, so I, I look at all those things and, and there's a chapter I call, um, you know, the uh, ivory tower black elites is the name of the chapter because there are so many people who, all right, let me put it this way. One thing I've noticed is that the people who say that black people are incapable of doing something because of systemic racism are the most uh, privileged black people that have ever existed in mankind. They're the most wealthy. Even someone like uh, Oprah is now peddling white supremacy as the uh, preventer from all black people doing certain things. The nerve of her to come from poverty, to become a billionaire off the backs of white women loving her to death, to now turn around and look at the people that put propped her up and gave her all that money to say, you're my oppressor. It, it's, it's that type of, you know, we but, what that around. She, but what she does to, to, yeah. to her fellow blacks is much worse than what she does to her white, to the white yeah. people. Because no, the white people couldn't, she, who cares what, what, what Oprah says. But what she is doing is manipulating, you know, that black power structure that says skin is kin. Yeah. Uh, you know, the OJ phenomenon and the Obama phenomenon said, yeah, you know, she's right. She's onto something. And, and, and there's this lack of awareness that these people haven't done jack for you. They're not, right. they're not, they're not fighting for you. They're, they're not living your life in any meaningful way. And they're, you know, they're just playing off identity politics to make themselves feel better and also to progress in their careers. Absolutely. And, and another, um, another big example is LeBron James. You know, LeBron James uh, was one of the most uh, critical people of the police. Yet, who do you think walks him into all these stadiums across the country? The police. You know, he finds, he finds such ease by even insinuating that a cop may have a bad day and wake up on the wrong side of the bed and he might kill a black person just cause. Meanwhile, he leaves the press conference walking alongside police who are escorting him to his vehicle. It's that cognitive dissonance that I'm talking about. Either, either he really believes that or he's manipulating people to believe that, to gain some sort of social currency. Either way, it's not good. That's not good. And it's also not good that the police do it. Yeah. And they might have their job, but they also have their unions. And the unions are completely bought into this stuff because it benefits them as well. Yeah. Even though historically, unions have, have not only done little for, for Blacks, they've been a gigantic obstacle to Black advancement mm -hmm. uh, by, by, you know, having a basically a closed system that often favored connections in terms of getting into a close, closed shops and all, you know, all the reasons. So now let's look at the counter, at, 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 the, at the, the flip side of that case, mm -hmm. Larry Elder, mm -hmm. the face of black, the, the tanned face of, <laughs> of white supremacism. Yeah. They'll just say anything, won't they? Yes. Anything. Yeah. Have any prominent Blacks in American political life, other than the people we would expect on Twitter, 
Candace Owens, but have any of the professional public people said a thing about either the attack on him, and this is an actual question, or the way the media underplayed the attack on him? Are you aware of any? Um, it's from the usual suspects. Um, the, part of the problem is, and it's something that I became glaringly aware of, is that the media, the mainstream media is overly biased when it comes to race. They only like one particular narrative and they shut out another narrative. Um, you know, they're not trying to be factual or they reframe things if they are talking about something. So the Larry Elder situation, if Larry Elder had a D next to his name, we would not stop talking about how a Republican wearing a gorilla mask threw something at a Democrat, uh, you know, uh, a candidate running for governor in California, the first black governor position that, that would have ever happened. So we would say this has something to do with race. And you know what? This woman throwing at Larry Elder may actually have zero to do about race, right? For all I know, she just doesn't like his politics because he's running as a Republican. But it's always given the assumption that it's race when it's the other side. And so I question, why is that the case? Why is it perfectly okay for someone to publicly, and I actually talk about this in the book, um, you know, where it's called the misunderstanding of black Republicans and black conservatives, where people can go on television and call someone an Uncle Tom and a coon, and they never lose their job. At most, they might get a little criticism, like, wow, I can't believe they say that. And I, and I list a bunch of different examples and nothing ever happens to these people. You can say whatever you want derogatory towards a black person as long as they're conservative or they're a Republican or both. And it's that kind of situation that we see when it comes to Larry Elder. Now, and what you're describing now, I remember from the summer of 2020, uh, all these suburban white chicks coming in for a little a night of fun rioting Yell, screaming and yelling at black cops. Mm -hmm. uh, every racial slur in the book. And what I'm wondering is, does that kind of footage and the, the Larry Elder stuff, is it having, are, do you think people other than that activist edge in the media and in, you know, in, you know, the institutions that are controlling the levers of power, but do you think people are beginning to catch on? Um, to some degree. I, I think with the pandemic situation, everybody forced to stay home, everything shut down, there's no entertainment. Everybody became hyper-political. And even for myself, you know, uh, I've had a change. I'm a former Democrat, I'm a former liberal. And I've had a change for a variety of reasons, not necessarily because of the pandemic, but actually the pandemic highlighted things that I was aware of, but it just made it glaringly obvious. You know, I like to say all the time that the stuff that they, uh, you know, used to whisper, they say out loud now. Um, and it's, it's become very, very obvious that there is a bias that is happening. They're not even trying to hide it anymore. Um, so I, I, think, I think ultimately, People are aware that stuff like this is happening. People are very, very focused on politics. I've met so many different, so many different people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, um, 
where they were former Democrats and they left for a variety of reasons and their eyes have been opened. They like to say they took the red pill and they see how the media is lying about a bunch of different things. You know, I'm aware of how the media frames certain, certain stories and you read the story that, you know, the title is misleading. Then you read the story. You're like, that's not matching what the title says because they know that people are just going to read the title and never read the story and that they can keep pushing a particular narrative. When was that red pill moment for you? Um, it, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was one particular moment, but there were, there were several. Um, I, I detail in the book, uh, I, I did some traveling. I started traveling around Europe a, a few years ago. And um, coincidentally, I ended up in Madrid and I was in a pub watching soccer games. I'm, I'm really into soccer. Um, and funny enough, uh, maybe this is like a, a religious moment for me, but uh, my team had finished playing and I was about to leave. And it's been a sunny day all day, all of a sudden torrential downpour. I had nothing. So I was forced to stay there. I was like, oh, there's more games on, let me watch. And so there was a, a Manchester City game that was on and I sat next to a guy and we just started talking. And we we're just talking about comedy and stuff like that. He was actually British, but he was living in Spain. So we kept in contact and we had good faith in conversation. But when uh, uh, Brexit was happening, he said he was for Brexit. So I asked him, why is that the case? And he said, the United States would never allow for an outside governing body to tell it what to do. And I was like, that's a really good point. And my mentality before was, well, the media was saying Brexit was all about these white supremacists in England who want, want foreigners out of their country. And I never heard that perspective. And that makes so much sense. And he actually introduced me to Thomas Sowell. So a British conservative introduced me, a Black American, to Thomas Sowell. And I had never heard of Thomas Sowell. And so, and I had been into politics too. And how is that the case? How have I never heard of this guy? So that was a major moment for me. That's interesting because my, my wife often talks about how Thomas Sowell was the first person she was exposed to who in a long form and deep and nuanced and academic fashion mm -hmm. argued, you know, explained these conservative points of view that she'd never been exposed to when she was yeah. in college. When, the, how long ago is this though, this, 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 you know, experience that you just. Uh, I want to say it was uh, 2019. Okay. Just a couple. So just a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's very, very, uh, very new experience. Maybe it's 2018. I might be confusing, you know, with the pandemic, everything seems so blurred. <laughs> yes, it is hard. It's true. So this is interesting to me. So you're, you're really kind of, you're really kind of new to the, uh, to the conservative scene. How are the Nazis treating you? <laughs> there's some of the nicest nazis you'd ever meet yes i met, I met most of them <laughs> yeah no actually that was that was one of those things where i started realizing when you when you enter um when you enter anything a conversation an arena with a certain perspective uh, or uh, let me say a certain assumption that's the best word when you enter an arena with a certain assumption about someone then immediately you're going to pick apart what they're saying to you but if you go in with a blank state and someone's just talking to you, then you're like, okay, I'm, I'm taking what you're saying for value. 
And I think before I would have said, yeah, but you know, maybe they're a little bit racist or something like things would have been revolving around race. But once I started losing that frame of thinking and just started listening to people, um, some of the most um, religious, uh, God-fearing, just generally good-hearted people who really, really care. And even more so than my some of my liberal friends that I had lost along the way, not too many, but uh, actually I would say they're, they were edging on leftist friends, but um, those people dropped me uh, as soon as I even made a particular question. I wasn't even fully over, I was questioning things. And so to me, it was worth losing those people to gain the amazing people that I met along the way. Well, also you found out that what you, what you lost was not nearly what you thought you had. Exactly. I mean, it's an amazing thing. I, you know, I haven't written off anyone on the, who among my many friends and family members because of their political views. I think they're really deceiving themselves. Mm-hmm. Unlike a, what a lot of people think, I don't think they're stupid. I think many of them are quite intelligent, right. but that they're, they're deeply committed to a, a, an approach of cognitive dissonance to their way of dealing with the world. But that's, it's not the other way around. The people have, have no compunction about writing me off or responding to things that I might post you know, on Facebook with the nastiest personal comments. Who gave you permission to do that? Why? We just disagree about a political issue. I mean, all of a sudden, I'm a, and, the, and you know, people have obviously been conditioned to think like this. So let's talk yeah. about, you, we can't solve all the problems, not during this podcast, and probably not even before Monday. Yeah. So your book focuses on the particular way all this is affecting Blacks in America. What is the solution that you suggest or what are the, what is there a program? Obviously more than one thing has to happen. What do you think is the number one thing that you could choose one change that we could make or one effort we could all get behind? What would that be? So just before I answer that, just to make a clarification, um, even though the book is talking about black Americans, it is almost like a case study, right? So they're the case study in this situation, but there are so many different concepts and principles I'm talking about. It's a book for everybody. So I've had people in different countries, different ethnicities. I found it. something something within it. So I just wanted to clarify for the audience. Oh, sure. Everyone yeah. should go out and buy it. Buy, and yeah. buy four. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, but to answer your question, um, the number one thing is finding commonality. I think that has to be the, the most essential thing, regardless if it's a difference of skin color, religion, uh, political ideology, you have to find something, some sort of commonality with people. Um, because regardless if we like it or not, we live in a multicultural society. We don't live in a, in a, hom- a homogenous nation. It is very diverse here. And so we have diversity of ethnicity, cultural viewpoints, uh, religion. We have a complete diversity. You should see the building I live in. It, it's the United Nations in here, and that's great. But we all have to find a way to get along with each other. Otherwise, this experiment that we're doing in America is not going to work. But I truly believe it It will, and it has been. But what's happening is there are certain people who are hijacking a narrative, who are placing enemies out of people that weren't their enemy. Uh, you know, they're making something out of nothing. 
And we have to get back to that point where uh, if we talk about race, race is not that important. It, it really isn't. You know, there's nothing special about my skin color in particular than your skin color. It's just pigmentation. You know, what matters more is my character. What matters more is my attitude, um, you know, my faith, uh, how I am as a father, how I'm soon to be as a husband. Those things matter. And my skin color is something that's arbitrary, uh, just like my eye color is arbitrary. It's just pigmentation. So it, we have to get back to finding something, you know, and also there's a chapter where I'm talking about this specifically. I give nine solutions. Uh, within the chapter, because I didn't want to complain and not have some sort of solutions. Um, but in that chapter, I talk about a man that I met um, during my transition in thinking and meeting people, meeting conservatives and having conservative viewpoints. And he's uh, in his 70s. He's white, lives in the Midwest, uh, you know, completely different types of backgrounds. But what we shared in common is that we both didn't have our fathers in our life. And we bonded over that. And we talked all the time about that and how it affected him, how it affected him at, you know, with drinking and becoming, uh, you know, a father and messing up and working together, trying to encourage him to rekindle a relationship with his children. Because in many ways, I wanted that, even though my father wasn't there when I was a child. If my father came to me in my 20s and said, I'm sorry, let's try, I would have been all for it. And he's been able to do that. And without that, ability to look past the superficial, I don't know where he'd be and I don't know where I'd be because he was influential for me as well. So th to you, that's really, that that's the starting point. And you know, I mean, one of the things you said at the very beginning of our talk that makes that sound right to me is one of the big, big problems to my point of view is the feminization of American discourse not just necessarily the, the American man. You know, there are lots of, lots of guys out there who work out, who can crush a beer can, uh, you know, on their forehead and, you know, who are, you know, more manly than I am in that respect, right. perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> but, who are, but who are not men at all. They, they, they simply don't have those masculine virtues. And my wife, Jane Coleman, the respected legal writer and essayist is constantly de decrying the, the, the feminization of American culture. Yeah. You know, and, you know, the elevation of emotional responses to every problem over practical responses and feelings over facts. And if, now, you know, it's not enough just to park the guy who inseminated the woman in the house. He's got a problem, right? Because if he, you know, even if we were able to fix everything starting from zero now, mm -hmm. he still was not raised by a dad. He doesn't. But I will tell you something. I've, I've known some really incredible dads who didn't have dads themselves. They can do it. You know, I mean, you did say something that kind of made me wonder you were talking about the arbitrariness of skin pigmentation. Yeah. It is kind of arbitrary. We know, for example, that at least when I was still in school and I was studying anthropology as a, an elective course, race in human, there's no such thing as race right. in the human species. All humans can breed with each other 
and the the um, qualities, the physical, the characteristics that define supposedly a race are often found at the end of every scale in every other race. I mean, you can you just you can see it. You can see white people who you could swear they were black. You can see black people who you never would have dreamt were were, were black. Um, putting that aside, mm -hmm. there are still cultural differences within, you know, you're writing a book about black victims, black, there's such a thing as the black, as black people in America. Right. Now, as you pointed out, some of them are Barack Obama and Eric Holder and, or, and some of them are Jay-Z and some of them are that guy in the street who coldly shoots six people because he was disrespected at, at a party two hours earlier. Right. And those people have very little in common culturally. But is that enough? Is it enough to say, in other words, who are we talking about in black? Who's the black victim and who's the black victor? Which black America are these guys part of? Um, in many ways, they're both part of the same culture, even though they're in different classes. So the, the victim part is more of a mentality of what I'm talking about. You know, uh, you know, you could be a legitimate victim of some sort of crime, for example, but many people who are victims say, don't call me a victim. And what they're, what they're referencing is you're trying to label me and you're trying to put me in a particular mindset. I am not that. I'm someone who overcame. I'm a survivor. They like to use that word instead because they overcame that situation. Um, I'm also using that in the way of saying you're a victor. You overcame these particular things. Sure. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, when we talk about Black American history, I have a problem with it because of how we talk about Black American history. We always talk about it from, you know, slavery, what was done to Black people, uh, Jim Crow, what was done to Black people. But we never say, look, we were able to overcome despite the negatives that had happened. Why don't we ever talk to it? talk about it in that particular way. And by re referencing everything from a victor, a victim standpoint, we are always referencing the past as a trauma experience. And what I talk about is how we're Black Americans, many of us, grow up in an environment where we are taught to relate to the trauma of the past and always feel that trauma. So when something happens, it is relatable to the trauma that we never experienced personally, but someone else's trauma who happens to look like me. It's a very, uh, it's a very harmful way to move about life. It, You're right, it, and I'll tell you something you might not have, have never thought of. Mm -hmm. I think the worst thing for American Jews is this obsession with Holocaust education. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about denying, God forbid. I'm not talking about anything, uh, anything, any lack of truth. But this idea that people say, well, the reason there's anti-Semitism is there's not enough Holocaust education. Would you mm -hmm. want to consider the possibility that the reason there's anti-Semitism, I'm talking about the casual anti-Semitism of bored, stupid, obnoxious kids, right. is because they're tired of hearing about the Holocaust. And, the, and, that, and that you have succeeded in framing Jews as great victims. Mm -hmm.
these Jews are excellent at being victims. Look at them. They don't hit back like the black people. They, mm -hmm. They're not, they don't, you know, they just, you know, they might meekly go to their deaths. The reason I, I, I raise this is because that victim mentality doesn't only affect the victim class, it affects the way others perceive the victim class. And to yes. some extent, the, the white person of the best possible faith who sincerely wants to buy into this because they want to be empathetic, they want to be, and they want to be a good person and a, and a, you know, a good guy and feel good about voting for Barack Obama because he's a white, he's a black guy they can feel comfortable voting for, right? Yeah. They're buying into this. And that's great as long as there's an Obama around who at least can, but I say it's great. It's great for Obama. It's great for Michelle. It's not great for Adam. Didn't do a damn thing for you. Nothing. In fact, right. it actually set you back because when, when those, those are the, obviously those are the real uncle Tom's, right? <laughs> those are the real coons. The, Cause the guys like that do nothing for you. They live in the big house, mm -hmm. but they don't do a damn thing for the community as a whole. I mean, Donald Trump did more in this first year for the, uh, for, for the black community um, than, than Obama did in eight years. I mean, you know, that's just, that's just a fact. Adam, but, I'm running out of words, but you look like you're not, you haven't. <laughs> well, I was going to say, um, you know, I referenced that as the liberal savior complex. Sure. You know, it's a, um, I, just to give a quick story, I, I became Take a friend. It's in slow motion. <laughs> We're not going anywhere. It's, All right. I just don't like to overburden my guests. No, no, it's no, no burden. Um, there's a guy that I met while traveling and uh, he was from the Netherlands. And we had met up actually a few times. Um, and we were building a, a pretty good friendship. And he even he admitted like he has trouble keeping in contact with people, but we were able to do it until he found out that I had no problem with Donald Trump. And from that moment on, it wasn't necessarily a disagreement in politics because I was like, screw politics. We don't even have to talk it. You don't even live in this country. Like, it doesn't matter. Let's talk about something else. But he felt the need to try to save me. And matter of fact, the last text message he sent me, he's like, this is my last attempt to save you. And it's <laughs> that type of mentality. Audacity. <laughs> right, right. And it's to me, it was like, how dare you as someone who is, if we want to talk about race, you're white, you live in a different country, you're not in my skin, living in America, you've barely visited America, you've never even lived here, right? So you have all different types of audacities to tell me who's lived in multiple states. I've lived in five states in my life. I've lived around white people majority of my life. And how are you going to tell me what my experience is and uh, how, can, how, can you, how can you not see how racist America is? I've lived here my entire life. How are you telling me as a foreigner what America is? But he was so glued into the greater narrative as a foreigner, not, I, should, I say foreigner, but as someone who doesn't live within this country, to dictate to me as someone who does simply because I'm black. And he wants to project that I am a victim. You can't see that you're a victim. I'm actually, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm fine. No, no, no. You're a victim. That's essentially what he's trying to tell me. But you know, that's, that's right out of Marx. Yes. Yeah. Consciousness raising. Uh, you know, the proletariat doesn't know the situation. They don't know how bad they have it. And, uh, you know, my wife likes to, you're getting a lot of Jane Coleman references in this one today. <laughs> My wife, who is, the, who is the better educated and smarter person in the, in the house, likes to point out to me that there's a really, really good um, 
essay by, um, by I think it was Art Buchwald, which is way before your time. He probably died before you were born. But he was one of the great New York Times columnists back in the day. And he talks about how the feminists, the early feminists in the 50s and 60s were trying to explain to women how bad off they had it. Mm-hmm. And they didn't understand. Their husbands loved them and they were comfortable and they were living a much easier and happier life than their mothers did. And they had they could go to college if they wanted to. And these women were telling them, no, you're slaves. You're, you know, you, you are, you're second-class citizens. You're the, well, you're the nigger of the world, as John Lennon said. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, he was not a conservative. In those days, things weren't as liberal, conservative as they are now. Even before COVID, they were much more. And, you know, he just, it, it's a fantastic essay that's been really, maybe I'll, I'll dig it up and I'll tweet it uh, after, after this, we drop this. But um, this, you know, I think we've got to start with everybody reading Black Victim to Black Victor, Black Victim to Black Victor. Who is this Victor, though? That's the one thing I didn't understand. Um, you know, the Victor in many ways is myself. You know, um, one thing about the book, it, there's a lot of stories. So it's not just, uh, you know, technical jargon and philosophy. It's a lot of stories. And I'm using my personal story, almost kind of like an anecdote, but I'm, I'm using my story to talk about the effects of certain things. You know, so when I talk about the effects of not having your father, I'm talking very intimately about what it felt like for me as a child not having my father around, what was our relationship like? Um, along with giving you know, some behavioral analysis and things like that. But I give a lot of stories throughout the book um, because it's very personable to read it that way. Uh, so it's, it's much more interesting than you know, trying to hypothesize all different types of things by that. So much, a- of the, much of the book is like my life story. How long did it take you to write the book? Uh, I would say start to finish about nine months or so. And this was part time. You have other you've got a regular day job like the rest of us. Yeah, I have a regular day job. Uh, I wrote it. I, I probably spent hour to an hour and a half every day, either writing or editing cool. uh, or during the week. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was first time my first book, first attempt. Good for and you. Yeah. Best of luck you. with it. Thank Adam, you. great talking to you. Have, have a nice weekend. And thank you for the opportunity and uh, great to get to know you a little bit better. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.